And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. Yes, you have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today as we begin our adventure into sharing, explaining the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And as you know, you know, the battlefields have just multiplied over the years. And uh, that's actually part of our discussion this week with Carl Keating and uh, Trent Horn and uh, you know, way back when I first started apologetics, uh, it was mainly Catholic apologetics, that is, dialoguing with Protestants. However, um, then you had the New Atheist and then all sorts of other strange things happening. Until now, it's it seems like there's many, many battlefields. So as defenders of the faith, as those who want to give explanation for the hope that's in us, we need to be able to understand people and be able to to respond to them on a variety of levels. That's why I'm really pleased today because we're going to have on the other side of the break, Noelle Mearing come on. She's the author of Awake, Not Woke, which is a fantastic book put out by Tan Book Publishers. And uh, in many ways, it actually parallels my own book, Revolt Against Reality, although I didn't have the book uh, I didn't obtain her book until after my book was already released. So um, I, in some ways, I, I wish I knew that we we're uh, digging along parallel paths, but from very different directions, though. Yet we come to the same conclusion. So that, I think, is, is great for both of us because it shows that we're on to something. And so we're going to talk about woke culture, what exactly is going on in the woke movement, and uh, how to communicate the gospel uh, for people in society that are rejecting historic Christianity in the broadest terms, in the broadest terms. Um, so she's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, as we always do, we sharpen our critical thinking skills with the Finding Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the fallacy of relative privation and also, we meet an early church father. Today's early church father, by the way, is one of my favorites. I don't know why, but I just like this guy. He is St. Epiphanius of Salamis. So we'll talk about St. Epiphanius and also about uh, this informal fallacy of uh, relative privation. But before we do any of that, I want to welcome you all to the dojo, beginning with our live stream audience. Hi, everybody. Also, I want to welcome all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world. Welcome aboard. Great to have you with us uh, as we dive into this stuff, you know, defending the faith and uh, engaging the culture, I guess. That's going to be the theme for today. Um, by the way, if you have a question for Noel Merring, you can just call it 888-526-2151. That is 888-526-2151. Or if you'd like to send me an email, love to hear from you. The official dojo mailbox that you can send your emails to is questions at handsonapologetics.com. Hands on Apologetics is my own website, and uh, you can uh, access all sorts of cool stuff there. But uh, it's questions at handsonapologetics that is the address that comes directly to me, and I do try to answer them. 
not always timely, but I do try to answer them the best as I can. So it's really important to have a, a lifeline that you can bounce ideas off of and things like that. So it's, I'm glad to be of service for you. Um, let's see, anything for getting, um, oh, yeah, I should always, you know, give a plug for our website, which is uh, virginmostpowerfulradio.org. Because, uh, man, there's just so much great stuff. We got the Spiritual Warfare Conference this weekend. Um, also, we have an upcoming conference on marriage and family in May. So you want to check that out, go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, click on the banner. And you get all the deets for the conference. It's going to be great. And, uh, again, you know, avail yourself of these resources because uh, we, we actually are very privileged to live in this time where we have just a click of a button. We could do so much. And so take advantage of it. Don't uh, don't delay. Uh, you know, a click of the button, like on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, you could share this program, uh, hands-on apologetics with your friends, tell people about it, uh, all from the comfort of your own computer or your iPhone or whatever you use. And that helps spread the word, helps us share great information that we put together, like this interview I'm about to have, and, um, you know, it helps further the gospel as well. So thank you in advance for doing that, and thank you for all those people who uh, have already done that. Truly appreciate it. All right, so let's go to our first segment today, which is the Finding the Fallacy segment. Finding the fallacy, the uh, form of fallacy, is fallacy of relative privation. Fallacy of re relative privation is also known as the appeal to worse problems or the not bad as uh, fallacy. And basically it's this, it's dismissing an argument or a complaint due to what are perceived to be more important problems. So if uh, you say that um, uh, abortion is immoral, the, the fallacious comeback would be, well, look at all these other problems, world, you know, world hunger, uh, wars, conflicts, they're much more important so it's just a, a way of sweeping aside a, a, um, a proposition without even looking at its arguments or evidence, but just saying, well, there's more important things out there, so yours is more or less irrelevant. Uh, the relative privation is, um, yeah, that happens a lot, and it's just a way of dismissing things. Uh, the, the way to... Focus, all you have to do is just refocus the attention back on the issue. And you could either try to show that, no, this is a more fundamental question. It's actually more important than the rest because if you get this wrong about what is the, the dignity of human life, you get everything wrong. right? Um, or you can just refocus and say, nevertheless, that even if there are more important problems, Still, we have to deal with this problem as well. So you just you know absorb and refocus. All right, let's go to meet our early church father for today. Like I say, he's one of my favorites, St. Epiphanius of Salamis. St. Epiphanius was born about the year 315 in Palestine, um, not far from Gaza. He, uh, his episcopacy was on the island of Cyprus. However, in at Constantinia, 
now called Salamis. Um, Epiphanius is a strange figure, indeed. He is uh, fully as testy as St. Jerome, and yet Jerome was friendly to him and held him with high reverence. Uh, St. Jerome called him a pentaglot, that is, he had knowledge of Greek, Syriac, Hebrew, Coptic, and Latin. Uh, Jerome says that, also in his treatment of him in uh, on great men, that Epiphanius' works were eagerly read, not only by the learned because of their subject matter, but also by plain people on account of their language. There is a basis beyond Jerome's adulation for this last remark. In fact, uh, Epiphanius despised classical learning of Hellenism and viewed with suspicion the elegant writings of those who had studied rhetoric. When Julian the Apostate, the Emperor Julian, disenfranchised Christians, preventing them from any longer teaching rhetoric in the classics, Epiphanius alone, among all the bishops, thought this was a sign of progress and rather rejoiced over it. Um, Epiphanius's language has been called elevated Koine Greek, uh, which is a very uh, simple Greek, and it's thought to exhibit a great many vulgarisms, and that is colloquialisms. Uh, Photius said of Epiphanius's writings were careless and verbose, and it is commonly concerned that he displayed the author's characteristic shallowness. Um, whether or not that's true, uh, I, I guess so. He, he, certainly his thoughts are very dense, and they're not very easy to follow uh, because he tries to pack a lot of information in a very small uh, space. Maybe that's why I like him, because I have a propensity to write like that. Uh, two things at least can be said in favor of Epiphanius's writing, says Jurgen's Faith and Early Fathers. They preserve uh, much valuable history otherwise lost, and they permit the reconstruction of lost writings of authors, particularly Irenaeus of Lyon and uh, Hippolytus, from his works. Uh, St. Epiphanius um, combined a fiery zeal for Nicene uh, orthodoxy, while incredibly rude lack of judgment, uh, moderation, and tact. He was a vehement iconoclast, literally, before anyone else was. He hated Origen passionately, which probably is another reason why uh, Jerome who also turned against Origen, probably liked Epiphanius. Epiphanius joined with Theophilus of Alexandria in expelling the Originist monks from Nitria. And when the tall brothers took refuge with Christostom, Epiphanius went personally to Constantinople to confront Christostom uh, with being a protector of heretics. Unreliable legend records one of those wonderful incidents, incidents which are really uh, too good to be true. At their last confrontation, Epiphanius blessed Christostom with a remarkably well-honed oriental curse. I hope you will not die a bishop. And Christostom responded in kind, to return home safely, do not expect. And within a few days, Epiphanius died at sea when his boat uh, on the way back to Cyprus uh, sank and scarcely more than a year later, Christostom himself was exiled, never to return. And that's our early church father for today, St. Epiphanius of Salamis. Coming up next, we're going to be talking with Noel Mori, hearing about Awake, Not Woke. Stay tuned, folks. More to come right after this.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And like I said in the intro to my show, uh, we are called to defend the faith in a number of different ways and to engage the culture. And that means engaging woke culture. And to help us do that, we have our guest, Noella Maring. Uh, she is the fellow at the Washington, D.C. East Think Tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's also the author of a fantastic book, and I highly recommend it. It's called Awake, Not Woke. A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. It's put out by Tan Books. You can get it either at Tan or TheologyofHome.com or Amazon. And Noella, welcome to Hands-On Apologetics. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, I am so excited to finally talk to you because uh, I just recently had a, a book came out in December called Revolt Against Reality, where I was tracing the historic roots of the craziness that, that we're living in. And then I came upon your book, and I wish I read it while I was preparing my manuscript, because we come from very different ends, but it seems like we end up with the same conclusions. Well, I, I just was reading a little bit about your book, and I would love to read it, too. I felt the same way. I wish I'd, I'd, wish I'd had this when I was writing. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, woke culture, I guess we'll start where... Uh, uh, probably everybody wonders, uh, when did you start writing this book and what was it that triggered you to think, wow, I really need to put this down in paper? Well, I started writing it, I think, two or three weeks right before the uh, quarantine started. <laughs> so it was a bizarre experience of I'd just, you know, gotten ready to write it. My kids were all at it. This, they all go to this sweet little um, Catholic school nearby. And then all of a sudden everyone was home and uh, we were trying to carve out time to homeschool and all of that. And then and then the riots started of 2020. So it re was really surreal, I think, to be writing about all this and seeing it all manifesting itself in the streets all over the country, you know, the, the revolution. Uh, so but I, I, I thought about writing it initially. Um, I'd been thinking about writing it for a while. I started writing articles about the woke movement around 2018 and was most intrigued by the 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 what I a phenomenon I was seeing in which Christians, you know, Protestants, Catholics were sort of getting pulled into this movement. And one of the things that were the first the first to go, it was a sense of mercy. They tended to become not more compassionate but but more but harsher. Um, and that was really interesting because the movement really claims to be a movement based on compassion. Uh, so I was interested in that and just the idea of can this be something that people can adopt and kind of combine with their with their uh, devotion to Christ. And it didn't seem like that was possible, but I wanted to understand if there was a way for um, for people to do that. And, of course, concluded ultimately through researching it that they're utterly incompatible. There's no way to fuse them. And I think that the the movement really operates on, you know, taking advantage of Christian precepts and instincts towards compassion and walking with the suffering but it manipulates those instincts. And, you know, eventually I think Christ becomes unnecessary in the mind of the social justice warrior because he's sort of a means to what their real, the real um, religion has become, which is kind of a tweaking of this world, the an obsession with the politics and the perfection of the political order in this world. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. It, 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 it certainly seems like mercy is the carrot on the stick that draws people to it. And then once they're, they bite into this uh, ideology, then they get weaponized and turned against the faith. 
You know, in order to be merciful, you have to be militant, oddly enough. <laughs> yeah, no, that's I think that that's absolutely right. And you see that hap that 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 happens every time there's sort of a, a totalitarian you know regime in you know to various times and places that mercy really flies out the door. It doesn't yeah. serve the cause of ideology because ideology really is furthered by people who are not merciful, but people who are enraged and hopeless and resentful. Um, and and it, it's you know you you I think we see this you know all the time today that in some ways you have to hate your neighbor. You know, it's a kind of this upside down version of Christianity where like one of the commandments of it is hate your neighbor because the more we hate each other, then the more we're distracted from the corruption happening by, you know, the totalitarian regime or the ideology that's taking over or the lies that are part of and necessarily part of every ideology because ideology cannot be open to the fullness of truth. Um, but that sort of hatred feeds into the sustenance of the movement. And so really mercy can't fit into that worldview. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's odd that it takes place now when information can be accessed, you know, at a snap of a finger or a click of a button, you know. And and like you said, it, it I don't know, what does it thrive on? Uh, fake news or um, it can't be truth. Right. No, you know, I think there's a couple of things that are that it thrives on. One is that, the, you know, that kind of um, the ability to sort of feel uh, a moral um, sanctimony, you know, that you're on the right side, you're aligned with the with the elites, with the people who are more sophisticated, um, and it gives you someone to look down upon. Um, and that sort of feels like a shortcut to virtue that all human beings are tempted towards, you know, right or left. Um, but the ideology really seizes upon that. But secondly, I think that it really thrives upon giving a sort of facsimile of a sense of belonging. So one of the, you know, every revolutionary from Marx to Marcuse knew that the biggest obstacles to revolution are the faith and the family. Uh, and when you dismant when you disrupt those in a person's life, you, you know, you really strip away the two most important things, a sense of meaning and their life to their lives and a sense of belonging that they have an identity that is gives them significance they're irreplaceable they're loved unconditionally that their value is not dependent on the opinion of another person but rather is grounded in our in our lord um, but we're introduced to that sort of love through the avenue of the family and when the human family is is dismantled then you go looking for it somewhere else and so that makes someone very susceptible to tribalism right because it gives you this false sense of belonging um, that you're, you know, as long as you support the ideology, if you're, you know, aligned in this certain, uh, if you identify by the evils of that's been done to you, you know, and I think we see this a lot with like sort of a an elevation of the victim identity, um, then they got, that gives you a sense of social bonding that you are deprived of. And I think that that really feeds the movement very well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially in now when we have an epidemic of loneliness, you know, the, the people are really hungry for uh, self affirmation, you know, for affirmation from a group, the sense of belonging, but it's always at a price that as long as you tote the party line, then you will get this positive feedback. Yeah. And I think that that's why there's so much rage directed towards people who don't tote that line, because I think deep down, there's a sense that something isn't right. You know, that there's some, that there's some lie embedded in their, the, the, the belief. Um, and the person who sort of stands against that then can be cast out as a heretic because they threaten the whole house of cards. You know, they threaten really um, what you found you've established your meaning and belonging in, which is this political ideology. Um, but, but loneliness is a key part, as you mentioned, Hannah Arendt speaks about that, that really it's not just about 
isolation. It's about making people have that spiritual sense of loneliness, of not being home anywhere, having no home, um, either in a person or in a place, uh, being wanderers, not pilgrims in this world. And that really sets people up um, for some sort of desperation, you know, to, to belong in some way and to find a tribe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's begin by uh, defining woke. Is there a definition of woke? And uh, what is it? I think that the most neutral definition of it would be to be the, the state of raising our consciousness to be alert and attuned to the various layers of oppression in society. It originally started with regard to racism, but it's since broadened very strategically to include, um, you know, feminism, you know, gender issues, sexuality, um, it, you know, but it's rooted really in this these old kind of Marxist binaries of oppressor and oppressed. Um, and what the you know the the new you know, the new revolutionaries did is realize that if you really want to disrupt society and you really want to bring about a revolution, it needs to be broadened beyond just the rupture and division of class. It needs to be broadened into all these other categories. And by doing that, you really get at you know one of Marx's biggest goals, which is disrupting the faith and the family. Um, you know, by turning men against women and women against men women against their children, as we see in with abortion and a lot of the uh, feminist ideology, um, you know, obviously the racial division um, and then the, 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 the defining part of our liberation is being in our, you know, transgression of the moral laws we see with the, with the second the movement towards the LGBTQ plus movement. Um, so, so really I think it is a woke, you know, ultimately my book, I think would is historically would you would place it as some fusion of Marxism with, you know, heavily with Hegel, um, combined with a neo-Freudianism, that's where you get uh, the, the real sexual liberation stuff, um, but also postmodernism. So the manipulation of language, the, um, the, the, the oppression of, or sorry, the, um, the rupture of meaning from our lives. Um, so some powder keg combination of all of those, uh, philosophies and, and, and ideologies created the woke movement. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, very good. So now I can see with Marxism, Marx had a goal, you know, this paradise where, you know, everybody would be lived and fed and so on. What's the goal of woke? I mean, if you're going to divide society on so many different levels, uh, what's the, the desired outcome or is there a desired outcome? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's altogether that different in kind from a sort of Marxist Marxist utopian view. I mean, it's just uh, the the thing that's added to it is that we have total sexual liberation. Although Marx would have been on board with that too, certainly in his writing. Um, but so it's it, it, the goal really is if we can that they can shepherd us to this place of liberation where we're liberated not just from the old ways that you know the old ideas. Um, our, our, our lineage and history, our family, our ancestors, our, um, our common narratives, even as countrymen. And this is why you see the iconoclasm of the rupture of this, or the breakdown of the statues, um, but also liberated from the moral law. So um, part of the woke goal is that that is part of the utopian vision where people have uh, no boundaries, no, you know, not even a, a stable gender, no stable um, sexuality. And that somehow in that, you know, liberation, uh, we will achieve utopia. I mean, it's all obviously a lie and leads to utter moral chaos, but it's ultimately a rejection of God himself, right? Because the moral law flows right from his very nature. 
Um, and somehow a, a reject, utter rejection of God is part of this utopian vision as well. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, you start the book uh, by referencing the uh, serpent's lie that you'll be like God's. Um, and, and since that's kind of what it is, we get to determine for ourselves what's good and evil. And that's kind of like the ultimate liberation. Yeah, that's right. And of course, it always ends up with our enslavement. Um, that yeah. you know, that's the that's the tragic irony. Um, and it also, you know, it, it, it interestingly too, I think it, it's really built around a sort of sense of parasite, you know, a killing of the father. A philosopher named Ed Fazer had a great article where he said that ma modern man is Oedipal. He wants to kill the father and defile the mother. And I think those twin goals are so intrinsic to the movement, a, a, a rejection of authority, real authority, which is always built in something higher, except for the authority of God himself, because he is the highest. But real authority, right authority is humility. It's, a, it's a reverence. It's fear of God. Um, and that's what makes authority work. Otherwise, you just have absolute power, which, you know, we know corrupts is the most corrupt is a deeply corrupting um, thing to be to, to be ruptured from any sort of reverence or uh, obedience. Um, so that rejection of authority, but also the corruption of innocence, that defiling of the mother. I think that we see that in the, des the design to corrupt children and also women as well. Interesting. We're chatting with Noel Mearing about Awake, Not Woke. More to come right after this. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Noelle Mearing uh, about her book, Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology, put out by Tam Books. And uh, uh, Noelle, you start, well, with part two, you talk about the dogmas of wokeism. And I found that very fascinating because it sounds almost like uh, what you'd see with coercive groups with thought reform. So uh, would you mind going through some of the dogmas and 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 how they work with the wokeism. Sure. I was, I was really trying to just get some way to distill the movement down so that I could, so that could be understandable. Um, because I think a lot of people are thinking, you know, uh, I, there's something off about this and I can't understand, put my finger on it. Uh, why do like, why does BLM want to also disrupt the family unit? What does that have to do with racial justice? So that was, this is my attempt at tr trying to kind of explain that type of thing. Um, so the the three dogmas are built around three pairs, um, two, three, uh, uh, three combinations of things where which should be in harmony with one another, but wherein one gets distorted and elevated to the detriment of the other. So the first one is an elevation of the group at the detriment and reduction of the human person. The second one is the emphasis on our will, our desire to the at the expense of our reason and our nature. And the third one is an emphasis on power and rejection of authority. Uh, so the first one, you really see that kind of collectivist mindset, that real Marxist influence where, um, you know, people become people are meant to be in groups. You know, that's what the family is, for example, or communities. And, you know, these are uh, these are things that human beings need. But in the woke movement, it becomes not a group wherein the good of the individual is in harmony with the good of the group. Um, but rather where the the individual is there merely to be a totem or to be a, a, a mouthpiece for the group. And so his will, his reason, his individuality are rejected. And it's the ideology that that, that is meant to flourish, not the individual. This is like a, a tribalism. And, and we see this, for example, 
and the way in which pro-life feminists were not able to officially have uh, affiliation with the Women's March in 2017. A group was trying to be co-sponsors and they were rejected because they didn't support abortion. And I think the the way we ha- that that makes sense because they, the women were really frustrated. And they thought, well, this is not an abortion march. We didn't think we thought this was just a women's march and we're women. But according to the woke, you are defined by your oppression. And so if you're not fighting it in the way that the woke movement dictates, then you are in some way not fully living out your womanhood. So to be a woman really ultimately is to be a radical feminist. Um, it's and, and you you also see this with the rejection of, of black conservatives, you know, that Nicole Hannah-Jones has said that, that there's a difference between being racially black and being politically black. In other words, that they're not there to support a black person. They're there to support a person who supports the ideology. Um, and the second dogma, the will over reason, um, I, you know, I think if we all remember, you know, the old, you know, Greek uh, idea that the, our reason, you know, it's like a, a, a person dr- a, a, a riding a chariot, that our reason sort of directs our will and our, and our affections become trained to desire and to rejoice in what is right and good for us. Um, but, but, but that we're trying to, uh, we're trying to conform our will to what is rational, what's in accord with our nature. And in the woke movement, it really reverses that, that we are, are, we are, are part of our liberation is not just to defeat the bad group identity groups outside of ourselves, but also to defeat our own instinct to conform to the moral law by transgressing it. And so this is where you see sort of a competition for the most outlandish presentation of self. You know, if you go to have ever stumbled upon a pride parade, for example, that's a symbol and a sign of the ultimate meaning with that. And that that's a, a sort of liberation, which is how can we buck societal conventions, not just in our in our fashion, ultimately, but also in our in our moral choices and our sexuality? How can we truly become liberated from all these old moral laws? Um, and that's how we find our individuality. And then the third one is the emphasis on power over authority, which I sort of went to the in the last segment, but it's just the rejection really ultimately of a, a reverence of anything higher, that all power, power is just a fact. And insofar as you have it, um, then, you know, you're, you're winning. And so the goal of the woke movement is to see the people who are in power, the bad people, and reverse that. And so it's a, it's a, you have to, you have to, um, actually reverse that domination structure. But you always have to pose as though you're still the oppressed, because that actually is how you ha- maintain your power is by yeah. the posture of the victim. Yeah, and that is, it's so incoherent, you know, that I am the victim, therefore I I need to be the one in power. You know, it, it, you often think of the victim as the one who someone unlawfully took power from or, you know, so, or deprived them of some right. But uh, it actually, it's kind of flipped around where uh, victimhood becomes kind of like the sword, you know, to defeat those who who do wield power. Yeah, it becomes like a bludgeon. You're exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that we see that in this, you gain moral stature insofar as the more you can, more victimhood um, kind of badges you can claim. And this is what the modern trend of people saying, really shutting down conversation by saying, as a, you know, as a woman or as a, that you can't speak about my ovaries as a man, you know, all these things. Um as though we can't reason together and, you know, that there's, we can't actually have any dialogue that, you know, it's an ad hominem, ad hominem um, ultimately. Uh, but it really creates this society in constant conflict as people kind of compete for status, the status of the victim um, based on narratives and based on 
identifying perpetrators, right? And so it creates this instinct to scan our society, scan our environment and and accuse people. It makes us, you know, accusers, which we all know to be, you know, the one of the the identity of the devil, right? He's yeah, a great right. accuser. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not only that, but and then there's also that strange thing, like you mentioned when you're talking about will over reason, that you become at war with yourself, that there's this natural law that's built in you between, you know what's right and wrong, you know re what reality dictates, and yet, you know, you have to fight against your natural instincts to overcome them and celebrate that as some sort of liberation. Yeah, that's right. I think that we see that, I mean, really manifest pretty concretely in the violence that accompanies the woke ideology, right? The mutilation of our bodies that accompanies the transgender movement, the disposal of the unborn, that there's all, there is sort of this, there is this self-hatred that um, it's a rejection of, that, of our own nature in order to sort of become a kind of God. Uh, but it really takes a lot of violence in order to perpetuate that because it is such an so essentially a lie about the you know our own humanity and a hatred of it you know it's this new gnosticism where we think we can be apart you know from our from our own bodies even um and that takes a lot of violence in order to sustain that lie yeah yeah absolutely and so um you, you go into indoctrination so uh, obviously much of this came through the sexual revolution uh, the, these, at least the seeds were sown there. Maybe if you could tease that out a little bit. Yeah, no, I think the sexual revolution, I mean, even we see it acutely in the transgender movement, but this lie I'm talking about, you know, that really started a long time ago. I mean, the idea that we can do whatever we want, you know, have like a casual hookup culture as though sex is meaningless. And, you know, I think that that was sold as this kind of glamorous, sexy lifestyle. Um, but really every, you know, every woman knows that what is done to her body is done to her, you know, and, and, and I think men know that too, but I think women know that very deeply, just even in the structure of our, of our bodies. Um, and, and that really served revolution well, because it created this whole host of, um, a society with a whole host of pathologies and a revolution, you know, it's not born from whole happy, um, you know, more uh, um, emotionally well-adjusted human beings. It's really born from people who are deeply wounded. And the sexual revolution laid claim to a whole host of wounds that became, you know, in some ways generational, because oftentimes if our wounds aren't healed, then, you know, we can perpetuate them. And, um, and, that, and that really served the revolution well. It also created a um, uh, a real effeminacy within men. And that's, that really helps with that, that um, tearing down of authority, right? That sense of authority. Um, I think St. Thomas defines effeminacies in some ways uh, or, or something to the effect of an unwillingness to suffer or do what is arduous for the sake of what is good. Um, uh, and, 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 and that's what's, I, I, what we see, you know, between for men and women, but it's very particularly effectively been done to men that um, the sense that we don't uh that we don't we, we can't provide we can't protect or you know that that it's th that their call is not one of providing and protecting but rather is one of uh fulfilling their own gratification um you know that men should become as Engels would say when he when he was writing with marx tomcats that once they become sexually licentious then that destroys all society from within the most personal way because the man becomes loses his moral authority and his masculinity the woman becomes distrustful and calloused. You know, she has to erect a, a, a shell around herself to protect herself. 
And then children become rebellious because the two people who are most emboldened to, and it was most their duty to protect the, ch the child, have no longer have any moral authority. Um, so it really dismantles society effectively and deeply from within. Yeah, yeah. So um, within this, the sexual revolution, of course, you get gender fem feminism um, and the pill. Um, any particular um, aspect of the sexual revolution do you think was uh, most detrimental that, that contributed to woke culture? Well, both of those, I think, contributed greatly. I mean, obviously, the, the pill was certainly a pivotal um, part of the sexual revolution. I remember watching that show Mad Men, uh, or the, I watched the pilot. And on the pilot, the first episode, the, a woman is introduced to be, her uh, career life as a glamorous ad agency um, by being taken to get on the pill. Um, and, you know, so in, in other words, even these progressive writers were re recognizing this is really the linchpin that allowed, you know, for everything that was to come, the whole modern sexual life. Um, and that's that separation of sex from meaning. Um, but also gender theory has certainly been hugely destructive. And I think that we we've 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 it's so um, ubiquitous that we don't even really realize, you know, that we have adopted it. Even, you know, some, even if we don't think that we're woke at all, sometimes we'll cringe, you know, the word homemaker, for example. You know, we yeah. my author Carrie and I write about this in Theology of Home, that that word sounds like such a, a pejorative now like someone who's lesser or kind of dumb or, you know, um, is not not really couldn't cut it in the real world, real world. Whereas, you know, truly, we should be seeing that as hugely noble, one of the most noble callings we could possibly do. Um, but we have these revulsion towards kind of gender stereotypes, even if you think talk about authority with a with a man or, or the authority of a father you immediately conjure up in your mind kind of these Hollywood um, movies of, you know, domineering oppressive male and a, you know, a doormat wife. Um, and why is that? It's because it's been ingrained in us for so long. Uh, but it's worth questioning, pushing back on. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, we're chatting with Noella Mearing about her book, Awake, Not Woke. More to come after this. Stay tuned, everybody. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Noella Mearing about her book, and I highly recommend you pick up the book. It's Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideologies put out by TAN Books. You can get it through TAN, Amazon, and theologyofhome.com. By the way, I want to... Uh, keep at least a couple of minutes at the end of the interview to talk about your work on theologyofhome.com. And right before the break, uh, what you said is absolutely true. Uh, today, of course, now we're thinking in terms of language with pronouns. You know, that's kind of coming to the forefront. But way before that, it seems like the whole climate of the culture had changed where certain ideas or titles or, like you said, being a homemaker suddenly is you know, out of the mainstream, odd, but other things are uh, bright and shiny and progressive. Yeah, yeah. And it, I think it seemed probably in some ways harmless at the time, um, because there is a truth there, you know, where we're all, we're both whole human beings. So men are called to be gentlemen, you know, gentleness is part of the male calling. And women, you know, in, and women are called to be strong too, even in our nurture, in our, um, in our uh, nurturing and um, relationship oriented, um, tendencies. Uh, so, so I think that there, you know, 
I think it succeeded in some ways because they made it seem like, you know, kind of a caricature, I, I think, of what, of what um, it ought to have been. Um, you know, women are merely kind of nurturers and that there's not, you know, a real, you know, a professionalism that they're capable of or, you know, what have you. Um, but but it went far beyond kind of rejection, rejecting a caricature or correcting maybe a caricature. Uh, and I think it was really laid, laid uh, claim to kind of a rejection ultimately of a proper understanding of masculinity and femininity. And that sort of laid the groundwork um, for the ultimate rejection of, you know, even a stable gender, as we see with the pronouns that you reference. Um, the pronouns, I think people think are even now, you know, because we're so deluded in this progressive movement, that this is just a small thing and it's just a being compassionate. But it really is a, a place that, you know, where we are given the opportunity or to to participate in a lie or to reject that lie. Um, and I, I and I think that's, you know, certainly a place that we have to take a stand about re not using gender ideology pronouns. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, because now even language is being uh, weaponized. Of course, like you said, it already has been to some extent, but now it's affecting, I think, every individual where <laughs> you have to start thinking about how you're going to address somebody instead of just how they are, uh, you know, based on their inner thoughts. So uh, maybe let's focus on restoration. Um, where do How do we get back to sanity from where we are right now? Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think two things that we can think about are clarity and courage. And I say clarity because I really think that it's important to understand what is happening in this movement. And that's why I wrote the book, uh, because it's very easy to get confused by it and, and in some ways to get manipulated by it. Um, so I think the more we understand what's happening and the important then we'll have the courage to resist it and to fight against it. Um, but but ultimately, it's a spiritual battle, far more, I think, than a merely political one. Um, and that's the thing that I was struck by time and again as I was researching it and uh, and writing it. It's just how much of a spiritual dimension there is to us to this. You know, it's almost as though it's the perfect it's the perfect um, manifestation of how the devil can corrupt us personally through a political, you know, a political ideology, because it really turns us into, as we were talking about earlier, people who are trying to accuse other people all the time. Um, we and we and we identify ourselves not by our name as God calls us, but rather by our sin. Um, you know, when we when we elevate our our sexual proclivities and transgressions as the core of our identity. Um, so there's a, a deeply spiritual aspect to all of this. And so I think we have to fight it first and foremost on the spiritual level through our prayer um, and through our devotion and and also through uh, our our own our own turning into our, our own uh, growth in mercy. So we start out talking about how this is a merciless movement and the church is constantly prompting us to become people of mercy. How? Through knowing ourselves, through the, through the sacrament of confession, through the mass. You know, these are opportunities for us not to accuse someone else, but to accuse ourselves through our fault. And then in that accusation and that um, forgiveness and that mercy and that experience of mercy, we become people who are more merciful to others because we know that we our own need for mercy. Um, so so all of these spiritual things, they they give us a real practical path out of this movement. Uh, but but I think we have to understand that there is a place in our lives that we're each called to resist this movement. And it's gonna be different probably for every person. But I would encourage people to look how you for how you can fight it in your particular gifts and talents and circumstances and fight it there. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, be courageous in regards to the truth and the clarity in speech, but also be merciful in the, the way you act. And I know it's so tempting to fight fire with fire and, you know, form a political group and impress our power on them, you know. And in, by doing that, we kind of play into the same game, right? Because then we re- reduce persons to groups and, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think one distinction, which is I do think that it has to be fought on the political level, too. Um, but what but what I think the point you're making, which is a good one, is that we don't want to become just another type of tribalism where, you know, like we don't want to become the very thing that we're trying to fight, where we don't no longer see we just see other people as kind of totems of our political enemy, um, that we always have to keep the person at the front at the forefront. And so that distinction of fighting an ideology, but but, but um, directing love at a, the human person in front of us. I think that that's a, a good a good combination of um, things to keep in the forefront of our minds. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, because it's uh, ultimately uh, they're you know they are really victims, but they're more victims of this ideology where they just reduce themselves to merely being sexual instruments or merely being you know s- spokespeople for a race or something like that. And so they really do deserve compassion and mercy and also to charitably share the truth about reality itself, biology, things like that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that a lot of times there's a, a lot of wounds there that, you know, that the ideology is mask or masking. Um, but I, I think it could be we can think that it's almost impossible to change their minds or to, you know, um, get pulled out of this. But but I think, you know, people want deep meaning and they, you know, what they want, what they long for ultimately is not going to be fulfilled by ideology. Um, and so I think we always have to have faith and hope, you know, that our Lord can really um, change people's hearts. And so we'd ever want to count them out or, you know, assume that they are, you know, lost to the movement by any means. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, we have a few more minutes left in the program. I'm really fascinated about your work um, you know, outside of the book, uh, tell us a little bit about your work with Theology of Home. Yeah, so again, Theology of Home, uh, we have two books that have been published with Tan on the, in Theology of Home book series, my co-author Carrie Gress and I, and we just finished a third that'll be out this spring. We also have a website, theologyofhome.com, where we you can sign up and we kind of curate media mostly women, but there's, we have a good number of male subscribers too. And it's a combination of, you know, eight links that we've scoured for, you know, that don't, you know, attack our faith or our beliefs, um, fun things, more meaty things, sub, you know, spiritual stuff and some intellectual stuff and recipes, you know, um, but we also have a shop there with beautifully crafted goods. And so the goal of all of these elements is just to sort of, um, you know, insofar as the, the feminist movement has, um, capture the culture oftentimes through media through magazines movies television um shop shop or shopping experience that Mm -hmm. the the catholics can start to slowly reclaim that 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 um that avenue um and 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 support a culture give a positive vision of what the good life is not just be on the defensive and trying to defend our way of life but actually showing it you know showing that this is actually a, a road to happiness where men and women can live in harmony and struggle together and um, and grow together and raise a gaggle of children together or, you know, what have you. Um, but this, but this life lived under the banner of God's love is one that's deeply fulfilling and, you know, full of joy. And, and I think we have to be promoting that and letting people see that because the opposite message has been given to us so many times. 
Yeah, yeah. You have to show there's a viable alternative to woke ideology. Is uh, you know, or you could love one another, build family, you know, enjoy life, and you know, truly be f- fulfilled. Because if you don't make that viable, then I'm sure people that are trapped in that uh, that system of thought uh, truly are trapped. They don't think there's any other place to go but to you know join this group or you know find uh, influence their power and so on. That's right. Uh, That's right. Yeah. So, uh, are you working on any new books? No, I'm on a bit of a book break. <laughs> um, there's just a lot of books over the last few years, but I, you know, I, 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 I don't rule it out. Um, but no, we're very busy with Theology of Home, and we have some exciting things that uh, are kind of on our docket, big, bigger projects coming up this year that, that uh, we're working on. So we're plenty busy, and, um, and, I, and I'm going around giving lots of talks about the woke stuff, too. So that's been really right. fun. I love meeting people in, in, that, in that context as well. Yeah. How's the response been on your talks? The response has been really positive. Um, I've had a, a couple of people, a few, t- you know, a few times during Q and A, you know, people who came and really didn't agree with me, and you know, were were challenging. But that, but that's good too. You know, I want to, I want to be able to, to hear them out and and feel those kinds of conversations too. Uh, so I've I've not had any threats of violence or anything. I mean, I get some hate email and some hate in the the comment box sometimes in articles, but. Um, you know, they're strangers and I, you know, say prayer for them and then move on. I don't let that, I don't let that type of thing get to me. Yeah, that's true. And I think that is so important in our fight against the culture is to know that we're not alone, that there, there are lots of uh, Catholics and other Christians out there, even non-Christians who don't buy into this, but the media makes it seem as if everybody's on board on the other side. And if you don't go along with it, you're some kook on the fringe. That's right. And that's part of the fighting it. It's just being a person who is openly against, you know, espousing a different view because it can seem like no one's sensible <laughs> isn't yeah. on board with the media narrative. Um, and that in itself is its own sort of resistance, just just um, just joyfully and but also confidently rejecting it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Boy, there's so much that we could talk about, about cancel culture and and Google and, you know, censorship and so on. Uh but uh, there's just not enough time. So where can people go to get a hold of a copy of Awake, Not Woke? Anywhere books are sold. We sell it in our shop at theologypoem.com, also through our publisher, Tan Books, um, and it's on all the big you know, sellers, Amazon, and all those people as well. Awesome. Well, Noella, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. All right, that's uh, Noella Mearing, and the book is Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology, put out by Tan Books, and I highly recommend the book. Uh, It's fantastic, and uh, we need to be armed for society. We need to be uh, know where we came from and how we can transform the world in the image of Christ. So uh, thank you so much for listening, folks. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. And it's already time for me to shut down the Midwest Man Center here, turn off the dojo lights. Thank you so much for listening. And God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call hands-on apologetics. Bye-bye, everybody. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, 
we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were open to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Power.